Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. The Last Supper is happening, you know, just in just a couple of hours Jesus is going to be facing a trial. He's going to be faced before the priest and Pilate, and he's going to be executed. And when we think of Good Friday, a lot of times we just think of the cross, right? We just think of what happened on the cross. And sometimes we fail to understand that the beating that Christ took before he even got to the cross a lot of times killed people. Um, that the, the beating was not just, you know, a slap on the wrist, but there were... Um, he was whipped, and the, and the whip that was used would tear away flesh and would expose organs. And the crown of thorns, it's not like going out to your rose bush and putting, but these thorns are, are half inch to an inch long, and they're pressing it down on his head, and they're ripping out his beard. And, and the beating that he took um, before the crucifixion, like I said, would sometimes kill these individuals. And, and besides the physical pain that Jesus is about to experience. We talked about it out of the verses in Isaiah 53, that there is a spiritual pain um, that Jesus is about to experience, this, this innocent, uh, spotless lamb, the son of God, having, having sins of the world placed upon his shoulders and experiencing the wrath of God. And, and this is what is before Jesus during the Last Supper, and he knows it. He knows what's coming up. And even with all of that... He's still pouring out and speaking truth into his disciples. I don't know about you, but if I knew that the, the, uh, that kind of death was ahead of me, I would just be like in the fetal position. And, and there's no way that I would be coherent, right? I would just be telling my wife and kid that I love them, and they probably wouldn't be much more than that. And I'd just, I probably wouldn't say a whole lot, but here we've got Jesus pouring into his disciples. And we get into John 15, he's going to start in verse 1, and Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Last week, we talked about these different I am statements found in the book of John. Uh, we, we went through them all, and we're not going to go over them again, but uh, he, he has one in John 14, has another one right here at the beginning of John 15. He says, I am the true vine. And when we look at these I am statements, we need to understand these I am statements are connected to the Old Testament. Um, I mean, if you just want to look just at the very I am, and you don't even get to what he says he is, uh, when God appeared to Moses in the, in the form of a burning bush, what he says, Moses is like, who should I tell him sent me? He says, I am sent you. And so Jesus is saying, I am. And then these, these um, 
adjectives or whatever they are, I was terrible at English, that he gives on the, uh, the back end are, are still have ties to the, to the Old Testament. He's not just picking out random objects, you know, like I am the chair, right? He's, there is a specific purpose in this, and, and each one of these statements has significance and, and tied to the Old Testament. Here he says, I am the true vine. And in several times in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the vine that, is, that, is, that God refers to, or the, the, the vine of God. And we look at several verses like Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, referring to Israel. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out of a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Um, Jeremiah 2.21, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Um, we look at Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. And so Jesus is making this con- connotation, this connection that, hey, you guys thought that Israel was the vine. You thought that they, this is where... Um, salvation came from, and it did. I, he's like, I, I am from, I'm, I'm a member of the tribe, like, I'm, I'm a son of Israel, right? But Israel's not the vine, that I am the true vine, that I am, it, it's no longer just Israel, but out of me now comes life. Out of me now salvation flows. And we see a verse like Psalm chapter 80, um, and that whole verse is, is kind of referring to who Jesus is, but we see this specifically in, in verses 14 through 19, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand and the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you, give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. That Christ is the fulfillment of this verse in Psalm, that he is the true vine. And so just so as we're reading through the book of John and we come across these I am statements, know that there are these connections to the Old Testament. Like I said, it's not him just pointing at something or something popping off. I'm, I'm a bottle of water. No, there are very specific ties to the Old Testament of him referring to it's, you know, I am the bread of life, right? That God provided manna for the uh, Israelites in the desert. He said, I am the bread of life. And so there's these different connections. Um, you look at Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He's like, I am the good shepherd. And so we could go, we could do this um, for all of them. Uh, but just so we know, there are these ties to the Old Testament. And then in verse two through six, we get some pretty interesting language here. Jesus says, he is the vine and whoever bears fruit, um, God prunes them so that they can bear more fruits. Now, I'm sure uh, if trees were able to speak and someone got these pruning shears and started going after these, these trees, they probably wouldn't, you know, be like, ooh, this feels nice. It's not a day at the spa, but it is this cutting away. And Jesus says it's not a, a cutting away for the sake of cutting things away, right? We're not doing um, this, uh, this, we're not decorating trees here. We're not, you know, making this art out of trees, but we are pruning them. Why? So they produce what? More fruits, um, and if you were here on Sunday, you know, I was preparing last week's midweek and I was trying to simultaneously prepare Sunday's message and people were like, are they running together? Not necessarily. There wasn't a whole lot of bleed over, but here in this passage, there is some bleed over to kind of what we talked about on Sunday, that this pruning process that God does to those fruitful branches 
it's, it's a painful but it's a necessary process in our life. That there are times where God is removing things that are keeping us from growing as we should. Um, to prune means to cleanse. It means to cut off these useless parts. Why? So that we can be more productive. And it's a part of, of growing in your relationship with Christ. It's a part of sanctification. It's a part of discipleship that God does this for his children's sake. That it's, it's not for nothing that there is a purpose in this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom, whom his father did not, did not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not his sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For the discipline, for they discipline us for a short time and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may what? Share in his holiness. That there's a purpose to this pruning. There's a purpose to this cutting away. There's a purpose to this discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruits. Why is God pruning us? So that we may bear what? More fruit? Yeah. It, uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is what God is doing in us when we remain in him, when we remain in Christ. It's what God does for those who are being productive, who are bearing fruit, that there is this necessary pruning, this cutting away that allows us to be more productive. And when Jesus says God bears or, or God prunes those who are bearing fruit, Jesus is, there's a couple of ways that we can read this when we're talking about this. Um, the first way we see that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, right? That, that we're all very familiar with this, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? If you guys can know it, say it, is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, faith, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I might have missed kindness in there, yeah. Um, I, was, I was looking for some help, but I was, I was having to, you know, just carry the weight. Come on, guys, help me out here. No. Um, but it says, against such thing, there is no, there is no law. Um, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion. So it's the fruit of the Spirit. When we are connected to Christ, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and dwelling in our lives, um, we are bearing this fruit, singular, that it's not, oh, I'm really good at patience, you know, that all of us should have this fruit exhibited in our lives, that this is what the Holy Spirit produces in each and every one of us. Um, this is what all believers should have in their life. Not, I have some love, but I'm really bad at self-control, but all of them. Now, there are times where it's like, hey, I need to pray for, for more self-control, but that fruit is still evident in your life. It might just need to be developed a little bit more. God might need to prune you a little bit more so that fruit can develop. So yeah, so we've got the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and so this is kind of the first way in which we're fruitful and the fruitfulness um, that Jesus is talking about, but it's also not just what's happening in here, but it's what's lived out in the real world. Um, that, that the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is evident on the outside as well as on the inside. That transformed lives are transformed in the heart, but also in the way that we treat others, the way that we live in the world. Um, so it means we're, we're called to be productive, fruitful members of the body of Christ. 
Um, we aren't called to be Christian couch potatoes, but we're called to, to do, to be the hands and feet, that we're out doing things for other people, that it's the work on the inside being evident on the outside. And so while we're saved by grace through faith alone, right, apart from works, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, right, that it's a gift from God, amen, thank God, because none of us are worthy or good enough to earn that, but he gives it freely. Um, we are saved by grace uh, through faith, um, but salvation is, if you would, like the picture of a tree. Salvation is the roots, and work should be the fruits, that, that there should be evidence of what we are doing. And it's not just the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, but it's what we do. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So what's James saying? He's like, cool, you say you're a Christ follower and you say you believe, but your life's not producing anything. Like there should be evidence of that. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So it's, he, he's, he's talking about what we're doing, not just love, joy, peace, patience, but that being lived out in the real world. That it is, there is a works that are being produced. And it's not, those things don't save us, but they are the fruit of our salvation. He says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So this is like kind of the two, the two sides of the same coin, where there's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, but us also living it out in the real world, where if we have the capacity to meet a need and we don't, and we say, I'll pray for you, it's like, shame on us. Shame on us. We should be out there meeting needs if we have that capacity. And if not, we should help find someone who does have that capacity, that we are equipping, and we're like, okay, I can't help you, but let's, let's find someone who can. Let's, let's take care of this. Um, because a lot of times, someone says, I'm hurting. Oh, man, my, this happened, this happened. I'll pray for you. And like, maybe we pray for them, and maybe it's just our way of doing our Christian duty um, and, and checking that off the box. And be like, got out of that one. Got out of having to do any work on that one. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Like, we are productive. That those who remain in me, they're fruitful. They are producing more fruit. And then there's this other group that Jesus mentions, and it's really interesting because Jesus says that they are connected to him, but they aren't producing anything. So what's he talking about here? He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. They are, they're, they're, they're useless. They're in the way. So God cuts them off, and they're thrown into the burn pile. And so what does Jesus mean by that? Personally, here's what I think. I think if someone makes a genuine confession of faith in Christ, that their life is transformed by the power of God, um, John 17, in, the, in a couple chapters, Jesus prays that God would keep those, that, he, that those who, who have faith in him, that he would, he, they would remain in him. Uh, Romans 8 tells us there is nothing that would separate us from the love of God for those who are in Christ, like neither death nor life, whatever, like all these things. Like we, we know that verse. There's nothing that can separate us from, from those who are in Christ. And so I think a genuine, sincere confession of faith is going to hold to the end. That if we are truly born again, if the old is gone and the new has come, then, then we are abiding in Christ, that we are living in Christ. And Jesus um, says something in Matthew chapter 7 that shows that it is possible for someone to make a, a false profession of faith. For someone to say, what? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who what? Do the will of the Father. And so there are people who'd be like, well, yeah, like I, I prayed a prayer one time, um, but Jesus is like, that's not, 
really what it is. It's those who are what? Those who are bearing fruit. Those who are remaining connected to me. And if we look at the context of this, who did Jesus just kick out of the room? Judas. Judas, I mean, he was hanging out with Jesus, right? I'm sure he called him Lord. He didn't make it. He didn't make it. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are, not all, they are all not of us. So maybe this is talking about people that are kind of loosely connected, people that sit in church service, people that raise their hands in worship, and they hear about the good news and message of Christ, but that doesn't mean they're doing the will of the Father. It doesn't mean they're being fruitful. Um, scary question, maybe a scary and sobering thought, but do we, do we know that all 1,000 plus people that come to Foundations Church are fruitful branches that are connected to Christ? I mean, if we want to look at it honestly in our lives, are, are we fruitful branches? Are we producing? Right? Or are we, am I? Or are we just saying, hey, and I, I come to a Bible study, I'm doing some extra stuff, so I'm good, right? But are we producing? Are we fruitful? And I'm not trying to make a judgment call, right? God's the one that searches the heart, but it seems that Jesus is implying here that there are people that are connected to him, but they're not producing. They're unproductive, and they're cut off and cast away from him on judgment. John the Baptist says something similar in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 27 through 31. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who's profaned the name, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Very stern warning that Jesus is giving here, that, that the author of Hebrews is giving here, and that Jesus is giving here in John chapter 15, right? That, that we should continue to pray that God searches our hearts, that God uses us, that we are fruitful, that we are um, not, not Christian uh, consumers, but we are Christian contributors, that we are out doing the will of the Father. It's a very stern reminder to stay in the Word of God and let what Hebrews 4.12 says it will do. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that we are in the Word, and the Word's cutting us, convicting us, and changing us. Stern warning. It'd be strange um, to, uh, to ignore what Jesus says here. It's like, oh yeah, anyone who abides in me bears fruit. Yes, that's awesome. But there is another category that Jesus talks about. Um, it'd be strange to, to read verses 1 through 11 and ignore a word that Jesus uses 11 times, or like 10 or 11 times in these 11 verses. Who, what word is that? Abide. So how, does anyone's uh, translation say remain? Yeah. Yeah. What? Stay. Stay. Yeah. Um, the word abide means to remain, it means to stay, it means to stick around, to not leave, um, to be held continually. Um, and this remaining evidence, this abiding, is evidence of our salvation. Um, I mentioned it on Sunday, but in Matthew 24, verse 13, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Um, and I want you to check this Greek out. I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's interesting um, to, to, to note here. So the Greek word for abide is, is uh, meno. This is my Oklahoma, so it may be pronounced differently. It's like my family members who say, let's go wash our clothes. It's like there's no R in that, but they say it anyway. So um, the Greek word uh, for abide is meno, it, meno, uh, men, meno, whatever you want to pronounce it, literally means to remain, not depart, right? We've kind of already covered that definition. It means to stay. And so when Jesus says, those who endure to the end, I want you to check out the Greek on this one. I think we've got it. Um, it's, it's hypomeno. But the root word there is the same, that it just means to remain, hold fast under pressure. That, that they are still abiding in Jesus. And so there's this connection here that those who endure, those who abide, will be saved. That those who abide in me are bearing fruit. They are not being cut off. Those who abide, those who endure to the end, will be saved. And, and, and this is, this abiding in Christ, like I said, is the evidence of our salvation, that we are remaining through it all, thick and thin. Eleven times he tells us to remain in him. And so sometimes we come up against this wall and, and we're like, but like, how do I know that I'm abiding in him? How do I know that I'm doing this, right? Let me ask you guys a question. Do we always follow Christ as, as well as we should? Yeah. No, not at all. I, I don't either. Like, <gasps> Michael, you're a pastor. How could you say that, right? No. Like, we all go through seasons. We all go through these times where we struggle, where, we, where our flesh gives in to these things we don't want to do. We know we're not, they're not right, and we do them anyway. Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This back and forth. And it's not this, I've got these dual um, spirits. I've got these dual, like, uh, lives, right? That there's not this dualism that's going on. No, no, that we are a new creation, but while we're here on earth, we're still living in this decaying, mortal, fallen body. That we are not perfect. Our goal is to be perfect. That's the goal that God set. There's no undercutting that at all. But we, we stumble, we give in. And we're like, golly, why? It's, it's, we, we are still, like, there's still this sin that, that, but thank God he has saved us. Thank God he's changed us. And so we have become a new creation but we recognize that sin is present. And so what do we do? We repent. We repent. We say, I, and we turn back to God. And what do we do? We hang on to him. We abide in him. That we hold fast to him. Why do we remain in him? What's verse five say? Why do we remain in him? Do what? Yeah. But verse five says, whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit for what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We remain in him because apart from him, we can't do anything. We can't bear fruits. Um, that doesn't mean we can't get up and brush our teeth, right? Can't, like, put on our shoes. I guess technically, if you want to speak, if God stepped away, we'd all implode in this spectacular fashion. But, um, but it doesn't mean that we can't walk out things in our lives. I mean... Uh, you see people who are far from God holding a job, people who are far from God being successful, people who are far from God doing all sorts of things. So what's Jesus talking about? He's telling us that apart from him, we, we can do nothing of eternal value. There's, there's nothing of eternal significance that we can do in him. John 6, 63, so it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is what? It's no help at all. Some, some translations say that the flesh profits nothing. Apart from him, nothing. We got nothing. Um, 
And so we stay connected to him because if we're cut off from the vine, we just become a stick. Now, granted, I loved playing with sticks when I was a kid. They were awesome, right? But if I was looking to start a fire, I wasn't pulling branches off a tree. I was looking for those sticks that had fallen off the tree, that had decayed, that had started to rot, that had dried out. And that's what Jesus is saying, that if you do not abide in me, then spiritually speaking, we're just eternal firewood. That's what we're good for. We stay connected to him because he is life. And whoever stays connected, whoever abides in him, is the one who's saved. So I want us to look at just a couple more verses we are wrapping up um, for this evening. John 15, chapter, chapter 15, verses 12 through 14, says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Um. In, in verse 12, Jesus is kind of repeating something similar that he said earlier. We said, a new commandment I give you, you love one another. You know, and we, we talked about this, I think, in, in John chapter 13, where it's not a new commandment, right? It's like that's kind of an old commandment it's in the Old Testament. Um, and so he says, uh, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, um, he's doing what he did a, a lot of times. He's taking an old law and taking it a step further, saying it's not just superficial, but it needs to be, something needs to be happening on the inside. That, that it's not just you love those who you like and love those who you get along with or you just treat your neighbors kindly, but that you love in a sacrificial way, that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, this is happening in the shadow of the cross, right? That crucifixion is happening, um, you know, in, in, in several hours away. And so is that you, you are doing this, um, that, we, that, we are, are lay, that we are giving sacrificially to the point of, of laying down our lives for one another. Um, I want you just to look at, at verse 13, and Jesus uses the term friends. Um, in the Greek, friends means friends. It's nothing. It means companion, someone you're familiar with, uh, not a stranger. And so I want us to look at verses 13 and 14, and maybe I'm, maybe it's, maybe I'm grasping at straws here, maybe not, but I want us to look at something that, that sticks out. So um, Jesus saying in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, someone, that someone would lay down his life for who? His friends, okay? All right. That's like the highest form of love is what Jesus is saying, right? Okay. In verse 14, he says this, no longer, or sorry, you are my what? Friends, if you do what I say, if you do what I command. And so it's, it's interesting that Jesus says this is the highest form of love, that someone would lay down his life for who? His friends, and he's saying, I'm laying my life down for who? His friends. Who are his friends? Those who do what he says. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 10, specifically verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Not just, but the sheep. Um, he's laying down his life for his friends. He's laying down his life for the sheep. That a sacrifice isn't isn't wasted. And when we are in fellowship with Christ, when we do what he commands, when we come under the authority of the good shepherd, when we abide in him, then we are beneficiaries of his sacrifice. Um, there's a saying that says that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all, meaning that if everyone who had ever lived throughout the history um, professed a saving faith in Christ, then, then his sacrifice is sufficient, it's, it's, it's good enough, um, it's strong enough to cover everyone who ever lived. But we know, that's not, we, know, we know that not everyone that's ever lived has ever made a profession of faith for Christ, right? right. So his, his sacrifice is sufficient for all, but it's efficient 
for some. It's efficient for his friends, for his followers, for those who are in Christ. And you're like, well, what about Joe Blow down the street that doesn't know Christ? Well, if it was efficient for someone who doesn't know Christ, then that means that he saved them and like, they're, then they professed faith in him. Like Jesus said in John 3, 16, whoever, or for God so loved the world that whoever what? Believes. Believes. That, it's, that this sacrifice is, it covers each believing one. There is this caveat that, that, um, that we have to believe. And so his sacrifice, like I said, if everyone throughout human history believed his, his sacrifice is sufficient to cover them, absolutely. But it's sufficient for those who believe. And that's our call, is that we believe, that there is this remaining faith, that we are abiding in him. And we go back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, that those who endure, those who abide, those who hold on to the end will be saved. What's that number? I don't know. I don't know who those people are. God does. His will, if it's his will from the beginning of the foundation of the earth to, to crucify Jesus, then I, I guarantee you no one's sneaking into heaven. Jesus, Jesus knows what that number is. God knows what that number is. And his sacrifice covers each and every one of those individuals. It's sufficient for all, but it's sufficient for some. And Jesus said that, hey, you're my friend if you do what I command. Um, Abraham was considered a friend of God because he followed God. And because he followed God, because he trusted God, because he believed in God, um, God had a covenant with him. Uh, we look at Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? James 2, 23, and the scripture was fulfilled and says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. We're called friends of God if we do what Jesus commands. If we walk in fellowship with him, if we abide in him, if we bear fruits, and we're his friends. And what did he do for his friends? He died for him. And his sacrifice is efficient. It's effective. It covers those we're beneficiaries of his sacrifice if we believe, if we abide, if we stay connected to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening and thank you for your word. God, thank you um, for the things you spoke to us, um, not just in, in this Last Supper, but in, in your word. God, I pray that your word would cut us, would open us, would convict us, would change us, and help us see who you are. God, we thank you. God, and praise you. God, we're not worthy of anything, but you graciously gave it to us. God, let us live in a way that honors you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.